FOMO. I wouldn't advocate lying ever. And bluffing isn't lying. Bluffing is just selective representation. It's representing your strengths and not talking about your weaknesses. It's how do you present information in a way that makes you look like the strongest possible version of yourself. And that's definitely something that I've taken away from poker and have started applying in real life all the time because it makes me appear like a stronger person. That's Maria Konnikova, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens. I'm so glad you're here today. And if you were listening to that cold open, which I hope you were, you know we're going to be talking about poker today. But let me tell you something. We're specifically going to be talking about the line between luck and skill and how you can navigate it and control your emotions to win in the process. Because let me tell you, I am not a poker player. I'm terrible. Do not play poker with me if you want. Actually, Probably you do want to play poker with me because you take all my money, but I won't play with you because I'm terrible. But the things that she talks about, you can use in every aspect of your life. Now, my guest, Maria Konnikova, is an author most recently of The Biggest Bluff. And while researching the book, she became an international poker champion and the winner of over $300,000 in tournament earnings inadvertently becoming a professional poker player. That is insane. She'll tell us the story. She's also the author of Mastermind and the Confidence Game and hosts the podcast, The Griff from Panoply Media, a show that explores con artists and the lives that they ruin. That sounds interesting. Now, she graduated from Harvard University and she received her PhD in psychology from Columbia University. And I'm just so interested because I love the fact that she talks about how emotion is such a big driver of performance and how emotion gets the best of us. So we're going to unpack that. And the other thing is just Maria, she's just very smart. So the processor, the CPU level, I don't know, strength, speed, whatever that is, is very, very, very potent. So just listening to her, I was learning the whole time. And I think you will learn as well and enjoy hearing what she has to say. Now, I do have a small ask for you today, which is to go to the FOMO Sapiens website. If you haven't been there, it's www.fomosapiens.com and look at who we've had on the show and think about who you would like to have as a guest. And then you can send me your ideas for guests either through Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, Twitter at PJ McGinnis, or through email at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. And now onto the interview. So I had actually heard about Maria and we have a friend in common and this friend said, you should check out her work. And I did. And I was like, wow, Maria's amazing. And I had emailed with her and her publicist, but we never really got her scheduled on the show. And I sort of forgot about her. It's hard to forget her, but I did. And so one night I was watching this new show on Netflix, a documentary called Made You Look, all about art forgery. And then all of a sudden there she was on my screen. And so to start our interview, and if you haven't watched the show, you should. It's really popular and it's really good. To start our interview, I asked Maria to tell me why she got involved with the show and how it all went down. 
Um, so the the funny thing is, I actually have not seen Made You Look because I hate looking at myself or listening <laughs> to myself um, or reading myself. So once I'm done with anything, I tend to just be done with it and not revisit it. Um, but in my last book, um, so I guess my second to last, not the one that just came out, um, but the one that was out before then, The Confidence Game, um, I had done a deep dive into all sorts of cons. And one of the ones that I had spent a lot of time with was the Nodler art fraud. And I got to know all of the principal characters, you know, went deep into the legal records. It was um, it was a quite a deep dive onto what happened with this art scam, which is considered one of the largest scams um, of the century. And I was approached by this documentary, Made You Look, um, that was interested in learning more about Anne Friedman and Nodler and kind of the psychology behind everything that was going on. And I'm very passionate about that space um, because I do think that it's often misunderstood, that the victims are often misunderstood. So I was very happy to be involved and to be able to speak a little bit uh, to what was going on, what was happening in everyone's head as this major fraud was being perpetrated. Well, I will tell you, you may not watch it, but I did watch it. So I can just tell you that you're very good in the movie. And I was really excited after that because then I, I, I read your newest book, The Biggest Bluff, which is now on paperback. And so, um, you know, you're not going to read that either because you don't want to read your stuff. I read it for you and it was very good. And I think everybody here is going to like it. So so this is a book, um, you know, it's the story about you trying to figure out this interesting relationship between randomness and luck. And, you know, you write early on in the book, if we live in a universe predicated on randomness and luck, then on a planet of 7.5 billion people, the idea of one chance in a million isn't so unusual. So I just want to start there and just have you unpack that for us. Cause that's a, I mean, yeah, I just read that. I should read it like three times for everybody, but that's because <laughs> it's a big idea, but tell us, tell us more about what you were thinking when you wrote that. Yeah, it's an idea that I actually was originally introduced to by a statistician um, who actually did the math behind, you know, one chance in a million, one chance in a billion, and tried to figure out how often do these things happen. And I realized that, wow, given how many people live on the planet and you know how much time we have here, all of these things that are considered oh my God, how could this possibly happen? It's one chance in a million. They, they're happening all the time, literally, because there are millions of us. So every minute this is happening. And we also exaggerate you know, some things that are actually much more frequent than one in a million. We still think, oh, that's one in a million. And sometimes we underestimate just how rare something else, and it should be like one in 10 billion. And yet one in 10 billion is still going to happen. And whenever it happens to us, it just seems so unlikely that our minds reach for crazy explanations. They reach for superstition. They, they reach for the unexplainable. But really, it's just chance. That's how probabilities work. That's how statistics work. It's just variance. You wrote a really great piece in the New York Times about people who are successful and how they sort of start to believe, I don't know, sort of drink their own Kool-Aid. And you included a quote from E.B. White from 1943. And the quote is this, quote, the society of movers and doers is a very pompous society indeed, whose members solemnly accept all the responsibility for their own eminence and success, end quote. So talk about that. I think that 
luck tends to be invisible to the people who have it. When things are going your way, you think, yep, you know, it's all me. I did this all myself. Um, I'm brilliant. And it's especially invisible to the types of people that E.B. White was talking about, the society of movers and doers, most of whom are just the absolute polar opposite of self-made men. Now, back when E.B. White was writing, that society was mostly the old boys network, white men with a lot of money who were born in a privileged family of a certain social status. And so they never had to understand what it's like to not be lucky because they won the genetic lottery. They won that lottery of birth, not just, you know, we've all won the lottery of birth. And I write about that too, just because we've all been born and most people have not been born, <laughs> but, <true. laughs> but they really won because they were born to money the right skin color, the right gender. And so then they're like, oh, yeah, I did it all myself. You know, I work hard and I'm successful. And so, no, no, this is really the American dream. And uh, everyone, if you just work hard enough, you will succeed. And that just pisses me off so much. And it clearly pissed E.B. White off, too. Um, Otherwise, he wouldn't have written this entire essay about it because it's just so wrong and it's so short-sighted. And it really leads to all of these policies and all of these pretty terrible things, if you think about it, pretty awful ways of looking at the world, because then, you know, you start blaming people who aren't successful. Oh, you're just lazy. You haven't worked hard enough. If you just try harder, um, you'll be able to make it. Or you say, oh, well, you're not as smart as the person who succeeded. And that's just such bullshit. Um, it just it just really gets to me because luck is not at all evenly distributed in the world. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I think about and when I was in my 20s, like, you know, I I had, had a lot of success, you know, to get into I went to Harvard Business School, as, as listeners know, and to get into there, you had to have some success. And then right after business school, my whole career blew up and it was like a disaster. And I realized very quickly watching myself and others around me, everybody had that moment where everything crashed and they were in trouble. And you start to realize like, okay, you know, there will be those moments reversion to mean and you can't avoid gravity. And now you, you, and you start to start the book out by talking about your own experience that led you onto the journey in the book, which is that you had this year where just like everything went wrong for you. So tell us a little bit just to frame the discussion about how your luck turned and how then you decided to go on this journey to become this poker player. Absolutely. Um, so I've always thought a lot about luck. I mean, I wasn't born in the United States. I was born in the Soviet Union. So, you know, in some ways, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was not anything I did. It was the fact that my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union and come here and opened up all of these opportunities for me. So I'm clearly aware that luck plays a main, a major force in, in all of our lives. But when I graduated from college and kind of started my career and things took off and things started going well. It's kind of not unlike you. I thought, oh, you know, American dream, right? I'm working hard and all of these things are finally working out. And then it just all crashed. Um, I had a year where I got incredibly sick with this autoimmune condition that nobody could diagnose. They just said, you know, idiopathic, which means, you know, we don't know what in the world's going on. But there were just 
weeks and weeks at a time where I couldn't leave the apartment, literally, because my entire body was covered in incredibly painful hives. I couldn't put clothes on. I'd react to everything that touched it. And as I was dealing with this and just trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do? And you know, I'm on horse doses of steroids, so I can't think straight. I'm falling asleep all the time. Middle of all of this, my grandmother dies. And she dies in this totally freak accident. You know, healthy, lives by herself, completely independent, um, gets up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and slips and hits her head. And it's one of these things where, you know, she stepped differently, she'd be alive. She was, like I said, totally healthy. And so that happened. Then my husband lost his job. My mom lost her job. And it just seemed like all of these things, one right after the other, that make you realize, wow, you know, when things are really going well, you start taking it for granted, no matter who you are, even if you're someone like me who's an immigrant and who's aware that you know luck is really important, you still kind of forget it when it's on your side. And then boom, all of a sudden these things happen and you see, oh, wow, you know, yeah, sure, um, I've worked hard, but man, have I also been lucky because this is what it feels like to not be lucky anymore. And so you go through this profound experience and you decide to go on this journey to test the relationship between luck and chance and become a poker professional. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. So like, why that? Why was this the, the path you decided to pursue? Yeah. So I, I became really fascinated by kind of the limits of skill and how we can learn to tell the difference between what is skill and what is chance, what we can control and what we can't control. And so I needed a way in. I needed a story. I needed more than, you know, just this philosophical inquiry what is luck and what role does it play? I mean, that's not a book. People would fall asleep immediately. Um, and whenever I'm writing anything new, whenever I'm starting anything new, I read a lot. That's always step number one. Read, 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 read. And in this particular case, one of the things I read was John von Neumann's Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, which is the foundational text of game theory. And I learned didn't learn much about game theory in the sense that the book is really tough to read and I didn't understand a lot of it. But I did learn that John von Neumann was a poker player and that this man who is one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, not just the father of game theory, but the father of the computer, one of the inventors of the hydrogen bomb, I mean, totally brilliant guy, was a poker player who thought that if he could solve poker, he would have the key to strategic decision making in life, that it was the perfect tool for understanding life because poker 
was actually like life, a game of incomplete information where you have to make the best choice you possibly can with the information that you have, knowing that that information is limited and knowing that the decision is inherently probabilistic. There's no such thing as certainty. And he also wrote about kind of this balance of the mathematical, the statistical, and the human, the psychological. And that really appealed to me. So I decided to see, you know, what was up with this whole poker thing. I wasn't setting out to become a professional player or anything like that. I just wanted to, you know, see what it what it, what was it that von Neumann was talking about? And so I started reading about poker and something just clicked. I was like, this is my book. Why don't I learn how to play poker? Have someone really good teach me, um, spend some time doing it and then write about the experience and use that as kind of my learning mechanism, as my metaphor for life to explore these questions of skill versus chance. Um, and I, yes, I ended up um, going pro and it ended up being much longer than a year. And a lot of things ended up happening that I couldn't have predicted, but that's life, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I love you start the book and you talk about you walk into this cafe and there's Eric Seidel, who's this major figure in the poker world who I, I know nothing about poker. Like I'm, you know, people are like, Hey, you want to come to poker night? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I do not. I will send Maria in my stead because I'm just going to get, I don't even know what the river is really, but you walk into this, this room and you convince this guy to be your sort of like mentor. How did you pull that off? Cause I think a lot of people, you know, it's like when you're starting something new, the dream is to get like one of the best people in the world to do it. But you know, that takes a lot of things to happen. So what was the secret to getting him to, to work with you? I don't think there was any one secret. I think it was a combination of factors, including luck. Um, but I did my homework um, to the best of my abilities. And I say that because Eric Seidel, who is the person who ended up coaching me, is very shy and very media averse. So there just wasn't much about him. But I started off, you know, with just these very basic Google searches, you know, best poker player in the world. Um, it's a little bit embarrassing <laughs> that's awesome. to, uh, that's, a, no, that's, a, that's what I did. It's a little embarrassing to, to admit it, but that's exactly what I did. And his name kept coming up and he seemed, there were a few names that kept coming up, but he seemed nice. You know, there's video footage of a lot of poker being played and he was the only person who just you know, never yelled, never exploded, just seemed like a quiet, nice, thoughtful person. So that appealed to me. And I decided that I'd approach him. I didn't know that he was a New Yorker, that he loved the New Yorker, the magazine um, that I was writing for at the time. I didn't know any of that. So that ended up being quite lucky that we had a lot of interests that aligned. But what I did do was try to figure out how to make this a value proposition that seemed like it would also give something to him. And so I, I did really think hard about it. You know, can I add anything to a relationship like this? And I decided that what I could bring was the fact that I have a PhD in psychology, that I studied decision-making under conditions of risk and uncertainty, that I have this other background that I thought could be quite useful in poker. So before we ever met, I did an extensive literature review and tried to find any studies that might be relevant for him and printed them all out and came to our first meeting, you know, armed with this huge stack of research papers, including some papers on poker, 
that had never really made it out of academia. And so I wanted to show him that I was willing to work hard and that I would, you know, try to share my knowledge as well. So I think that was useful. And the other part of the puzzle was that I was not a poker player. I was a journalist. I was an outsider. And I think to him, that meant two things. One, it was kind of this proof of concept of challenge. Would his philosophy still work? And his philosophy is that all it takes really is good thinking to be a good poker player. You don't have to be a math genius. You don't have to, you know, be someone who's spent years immersed in advanced statistics. And if he could teach me, if he could make me actually good, that would mean that that sort of psychological approach could still be a winning approach. And that would be a big win for him. And the other element of that was that he loves poker. He loves the game. And he, I think, wanted to spread that love as far as possible. And so it was a long-term investment because I was writing a book that was not for poker players. That was for the world at large. And so I think he kind of saw to the end of the project and thought, hey, maybe this is a way to get more people interested in the game and more people to understand what the game really is. So a lot of things had to come together for that to happen. And there's two things there that really stand out for anybody who's listening. That's like, I want to get somebody to help me to do something. It doesn't have to be poker. Obviously it can be anything in the world. There's two things you did there that I think are really meaningful. Number one is that you, you remembered your own advice, which we talked about earlier. It's like that one in a million thing, you know, you made it happen, right? So you, you were willing to go on Google and, you know, do this search, which sounds a little crazy now, but, or, you know, it's funny, but you, you kind of went after it in a, and, and you, you didn't give up just because it seemed very remote. Number two is you figured out what you could bring to the table and offer him, which I think is something that a lot of times when people ask other people for it, they don't do. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, you were seeking to determine how often we actually are in control when we think we are and how we can separate the product of our own efforts from strokes of randomness governing the universe. So as you went through this, you know, this this combination of skill and, and probability, what did you learn? What are the big takeaways from this experiment? <laughs> that it's hard, first of all, um, that it's very easy to take credit for things when they're going well, even when we don't deserve to, and that it's very tempting to just shrug it off and say, it's not my fault when things go poorly. That what the mind often does is use the outcome and conflate it with the process rather than separating the two. But that poker is actually this a perfect tool for disentangling the two. Because if you keep doing that, if you keep being the sort of player who takes credit for success always and refuses to take blame for failure, you're going to go broke. There's a very, very clear feedback mechanism here, right? You are going to lose all of your money. And so it forces you to actually start picking the two apart. And the beauty of poker is that it isn't life. It's a game. There are only so many variables there. And so you can see what all the variables are and start figuring out, okay, which ones am I actually controlling and which ones are totally outside of my control? Because where the one ends, that's where skill ends and that's where chance begins. So what do I control? I mean, I control my thought process. I control how I approach a problem. I control my decision-making. I control my emotions, my actions, my reactions to other people. 
I don't control the cards, obviously, that's total chance. I don't control not only what cards are dealt, but which cards are coming out into the middle and which cards are going to continue to come out after I make a decision. I don't control other players. I'm not controlling how they're acting, how they're thinking, what they're doing, how they're reacting. And so all of that, those are all chance elements that are coming together to eventually lead to the main outcome. And the other thing about poker is you actually can calculate what the odds are, what the probabilities are, because there are only 52 cards, only so many combinations, and you can figure it out. And so you can actually do the math and say, did I make the right decision as measured by, was I a favorite at the moment that the money went in? And you can make that calculation. You can say, oh, with these two cards, given, you know, given everything, I'm 60% to win wonderful. That's amazing. I made the right choice. Now, even if I lose and I'm going to lose 40% of the time, that's great. I should keep doing that and vice versa. Sometimes you make the wrong decision. You know, you're a 40% dog and you win. That doesn't mean that you suddenly became brilliant. That means that you made a mistake and you should try to figure out where that mistake is. The incentive is there. The environment is there. And once you learn how to do it in poker, you can take it away from the poker table to decision-making in real life. Talk about bluffing. I'm wondering, you, bluffing is obviously something that's often used in poker. <laughs> Did it change the way this experience of, of the whole, you know, the book is called, it's all about bluffs. Did it change the way you negotiate in, in life? And, and how do you think about bluffing in that context? It did. It made me realize that even though it seems obvious that nobody knows what hand you hold, in poker, you really kind of internalize it to a different degree. So what you see is what people project, not what they're actually holding. So no one knows if you have a shitty hand or an amazing hand. All they see is the information that you're giving off. So how you're acting, how you're playing it, what you're doing, all of those signals. And now if you take that outside of poker, all of a sudden it makes you, I think, a much stronger negotiator, a much stronger job candidate, just much stronger at representing yourself because you realize that nobody knows what you know. Nobody knows what cards you hold, proverbially speaking, um, in real life. All they see is how you present yourself. And so I wouldn't advocate lying ever. And bluffing isn't lying. Bluffing is just selective representation. It's representing your strengths and not talking about your weaknesses. It's how do you present information in a way that makes you look like the strongest possible version of yourself. And that's definitely something that I've taken away from poker and have started applying in real life all the time because it makes me appear like a stronger person. And men are much better and just naturally at doing this because of the way society is formed. You know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, E.B. White, you know, movers and doers, mostly men. So they're used to projecting confidence. And in the book, I have a term for this, which I call big swinging dicks. Um, And to me, it was very foreign. It was actually very difficult to overcome kind of the sense of my own limitations and inadequacies. But it was a very powerful lesson that, you know what, if you are acting like a big swinging dick, that doesn't mean you're actually strong. It just means you're really, really good at projecting confidence. And everyone can learn from that. 
Yeah, it's the old fake it till you make it, right? You see, I've met so many people in my life where you're like, you find out later that it was all BSD energy or BDE. I <laughs> um, but but then you're like and I and I like I, you know I'm from Maine we don't even I don't think we have that in the state of Maine so like when I came to New York City I constantly felt outgunned and uh, it's it's definitely something what you say is is very true now I, I want to close just talking about the mental aspects because you know I have watched some of these poker games right you mm -hmm. see like people wearing sunglasses and a hat and I don't know. There's a lot of mental aspects to the game. And, you know, one one thing we talk a lot about at the show, just because like managing FOMO is all about like dealing with your emotions. I imagine you learned a lot about managing your emotions in this mm -hmm. process. So what were some of the things that have stuck with you about that? Well, one of the things that really came out in this experience was that I needed help managing my emotions. The reason I say it the way that I say it, uh, said it is that I studied this in grad school. So my advisor when I was getting my PhD was Walter Michel, who people might know as the marshmallow guy. Um, so he was the scientist who had come up with the famous marshmallow study where you put a marshmallow in front of a little kid and ask them if they can wait until the you come back into the room and if they can wait, then they get more marshmallows. And so you wait and you see, you know, can the kid wait or does the kid eat the marshmallow? And it ends up that the people who can wait the longest had the best life outcomes over the next 40 years um, in all sorts of ways, happier, healthier, made more money, you name it, they had it. And it was all about self-control, delaying gratification, being able to cool your hot emotional state in the moment. This is who I studied with. So I knew all about this research. I knew all the tools and techniques for cooling your emotions. And I thought that I was really, really good at self-control. Then I started playing poker and I realized, oh man, <laughs> everyone gets emotional at the poker table, including me. And so it was this experience where I had to try to figure out in a very systematic way, okay, Maria, you know, what is it that triggers you? What are the things that upset you? What are the things that frustrate you? What are the things that make you really excited? What are the things that make you think irrationally or in poker terms, put you on tilt? And it was a really important exercise because then I could say when I wasn't in the moment, how am I going to respond to these things when they're happening? Because poker makes you realize that when you're in the hot emotional situation already, it's already too late. It's really hard to cool your emotions, to have mental discipline when you're already in kind of the throes of a hot emotional condition. So the key is to thinking through it in advance, to anticipating the types of scenarios that are going to make you emotional and to figure out what am I going to do immediately to cool off so that I don't start that emotional cycle, which is going to affect my decision making negatively. And once you learn how to do that, I think you have such an edge because at the highest levels of poker, everyone is good at the math. Everyone is good at the statistics and the strategy. But where the truly great players differentiate themselves are in their mental game, their ability to remain cool no matter what. All right. The book is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. The website is mariaconicova.com. And that's a double N in there. Uh, you can find Maria on Twitter at mconicova and on Instagram at girl named Maria. But there's no I in girl. It's G-R-L named Maria. Maria, thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrup. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.